This week we also heard about the fires in Australia. And it reminded us of what happened in California over the last couple summers. And the reality that there is change going on and it feels apocalyptic, doesn't it? Um, we were reminded this week as well of, of the, the tragedy of, of racism. The Jewish uh, family of faith being assaulted in our own country. And then this weekend we were greeted with the news of, of the, the, the assassination of an Iranian general. And fears are stirred up and uh, even thought of, of uh, war, rumors of war are beginning to rumble. And does that sound familiar to you? Yeah. All of that is our present. And it brings context to how we look at the future. Now, when we... When we talk about vision for the future, and we use this analogy of 2020 vision, it's curious to me that the, the, the optometric association of, of our, our country our, uh, says that 2020 vision is what is normal vision. It's curious as well that it has primarily to do with what you see at a distance. It's not so much about what you see presently. It's about how you see at a distance. You see, 2020 means that you can see clearly things at, at about 20 feet. Now, if you, if you have, um, if you have uh, 2040 vision... Um, you are able to pass a driver's license test in every 50 states. But it takes 2020 vision to be a fighter pilot. All right? Um, if you have 2080 vision, you're able to read the alarm clock in your bedroom at about 10 feet. Question is, why would you put your alarm clock 10 feet away? So you have to get up to turn it off, right? If you have 2200 vision, you are actually legally blind. It, um, what that means is that at 2200, at 20 feet, you are able to read the letters on a great big sign that says STOP. Now, all of that is, is, part of hyperoptics. They call that hyperoptic, being able to see at a distance. But the ability to see close up is called myoptic or myopia. If, and many of us have myopia in this room. You know how I know that? A lot of us are wearing these things. Yeah, it, we require assistance in order to be able to read what's close up. Now, um, understanding what's close is very, very important because it gives us the context of looking ahead. Looking uh, ahead as we consider the future. Now, I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles to Second Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter is found almost at the end of the New Testament. Uh, if you get to Revelation, you've gone too far. If you see 1st, 2nd, or 3rd John, you've got, you're just a little too far. It's right before those books. So we're in 2 Peter chapter 1. And in verse 9 of chapter 1 of 2 Peter... The Apostle Peter suggests that the ability to see the long view is really, really important for our spiritual health. Verse 9, for he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted. Hmm. 
That ability is directly linked to what is that ability to see at a distance is very uh, inextricably linked to what is very close. The rest of the verse is, for he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification, purification from his former sins. That's very personal. It's very close. Now, all of that is to get us to ask this question, okay, what are these qualities that the Apostle Peter is speaking about? Because they are very important for us to understand uh, this, the, the, the gravity of being able to look beyond the present. And so let's begin at chapter 1, verse 1 as we dig in to who this is or what is the context of this statement and what are these qualities that set apart this necessary ability to see beyond the present. We start with Simon Peter. That's who's writing the letter. A bondservant of the apostle Jesus Christ. Note that Simon Peter has two names. That's not his first and second name. No, it's, or it's not his first and last name. It's his first and second name. Let me say that. We know that Simon is Simon Barjona. He is the disciple that Jesus called right off of, of the beach of, on, at the Sea of Galilee. We see that in Matthew uh, chapter 4. And, and in brief... Uh, Jesus calls Simon to follow him. He's out there. He's a fisherman cleaning his nets. And, and Jesus calls him to follow him and says, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. He calls him Simon at that point. But a number of chapters later, chapter 16 of Matthew, we discover that Jesus gives him a second, a second name. And that name is Peter. Um, I'd like to read that passage for you. Matthew 16, verse 15 through 18. And he said to them, that is Jesus, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Simon answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. That means Simon, son of Jonah. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say that you are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. That, uh, that word Peter comes from the Greek word Petros, and it means rock. You could say that Jesus gives uh, Simon a new nickname, and it's Rocky. Yeah, and, it, and he goes on to say that that's the foundation on which the church is going to be built. Now, um, some have misunderstood this text and, and under, under, understand that, okay, the church is built upon the apostle Peter. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is that the church is built upon the confession that Peter made. And that is that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. That is what binds us together as believers, right? We have this common faith that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. Now, uh, there is uh, that second name is very, very important. That faith that Jesus is the Christ is what enables us to join with a common faith, even with those there in the first century. Now, Peter is very uh, cognizant of his past. These two names represent that reality. He's aware that he is the very same Simon that 
denied Jesus three times. He's aware that he is the Peter whom Jesus called and restored even as we read in John chapter 21 we know that that Peter denied Jesus before his crucifixion three times right there on the the shore of the sea of Galilee we read in John 21 that Jesus questioned him three times to restore him and his question was Peter do you love me well Peter's thought was, yes, Lord, I, I love you. Yeah. No, Peter, do you, do you love me? Will you? Yes, Lord, yes. And he questions, Jesus questions Peter a third time, and Peter's honestly flustered by that. But what Jesus is doing is he is restoring him to that former former place before his denial. And so that is who is writing this letter. Now, um, we read Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Again, we see that Peter is, is reveling in the fact that he owes Jesus everything. He is a bondservant, and he's connected to him for life. And he's also an apostle. The apostle, the word apostle means called one, or sent, excuse me, sent one, who is uh, sent out. Jesus commissioned Peter. Now, we read on, bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have received the faith a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we understand who Peter is. Who is Peter writing to? Well, he's writing to people with a common faith. It's really interesting to me that, that um, this identity of this people is marked by having received a faith. Understand that faith is not something you earn. It's not something that uh, you work up. It's a gift. It's a gift that is given. And anyone can receive that faith. Now, uh, it's the same kind of faith as the apostles had. I, have, I, I take great comfort in that. You know what that says to me? It says that we have the very same faith today that the followers of Jesus had then. And God does not look at us in any, with any difference. There's no levels of, of, of people who are, uh, uh, are more precious or more valuable from any one place or any one people group or any one century. We're all equal in the eyes of God. Uh, Billy Graham says, uh, the famous quote, is that the ground at the foot of the cross is level. That's awesome. And, and we have that very same faith. It's rooted, it's rooted in righteousness. And who is, uh, uh, whose righteousness is that? You see, it's the righteousness of God. Look at the text. We have the same faith by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, throughout Peter's letter here, he, we have this word righteousness, and it is important to understand that it's the same idea of righteousness that we find in the Old Testament. In other words, it's related to God's justice. It's about being right with God. And when 
he speaks of those who have this common faith through the righteousness of God. It's not their own righteousness. It's the righteousness of God. It's the righteousness of Jesus that enables us to have this faith. Now, that righteousness satisfies the justice of God. Think about it. What's the, what's the, the scripture say that the, the just requirement of sin is? The wages of sin is? Right. And Jesus bore our sins in his death. We don't have to die. Jesus paid that debt for us. It is his righteousness that enables us to have this common faith. Now, it's important to know that this righteousness is available to anyone. Anyone, capital letters, underlined. Anyone who is, will acknowledge their need of this unspeakable gift. Regardless, regardless of our, ident our identity, our social network, our ethnic background, regardless of our history, what we've done or not done, what we've accomplished or failed at. It's available to anyone. You see, God refuses, absolutely refuses to make distinctions between the recipients of his grace. Now, the apostle also in this statement acknowledges Jesus as God, the deity of Jesus. This is important for us to understand. There are those among uh, our community who would say, uh, and I say broad, our social community, who, who identify themselves as Christians, but they do not say that Jesus is God. In fact, they're clear to say he is not. Understand that that is not biblical Christianity. Jesus, uh, Peter identifies Jesus as God here. The word is in Greek is theos. It means the supreme God, the one over all. And the Apostle Paul goes even further in Colossians chapter 2. He says, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells, that is in Jesus, in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. That's who Jesus is. Now, he also declares that he is Savior, he is God and he is Savior. That word means deliverer. So he is the supreme God, but he also is our deliverer. What does he deliver us from? Well, we already talked about it. He delivers us from the penalty of death or the penalty of our sin, which is death. How does he do that? He dies in our place. How can that be? You understand the the way that happens, he is the supreme God. But he is also the supreme sacrifice. This is unique. This is what sets our God apart. He is unlike any other so-called God out there in that he gave his life in exchange for ours. That's the description of holiness, being unlike any other. Now, uh, let's go on. We've identified who Peter is and who he's writing to. Now, let's identify his message. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and, our, 
and Jesus our Lord. This is his message that he wants to send to those he's writing to. And who is that? Well, it includes us. We're reading his letter, right? And indeed, it includes us. Now, this is a salutation with substance. It's, it's full of meaning. It, it, turn over a couple pages and look at the very last verse of this, of this uh, letter. Verse 18 of chapter 3. But grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord. You, you see the similarity there? In the beginning, he says, grace and peace to you. At the end, he says, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord. That, that similarity says that this indeed is the beginning and the end of what Peter desires to say to us. Everything in between is related to that. Now, this word grace is, is interesting. It is, it is a word that means favor. It is a, a word that means gift and a joyful gift. Not only that, a, a joyful gift that is given with great liberality. And it is also given with great pleasure. That's this gift that God desires to give us. Now, it, um, he, he says that this is his desire at the beginning, and he also that we would receive that, but also that we would grow in that grace. Um, Peter's vision for those to whom he is writing is both what is and what can be. Growing in grace is a worthy vision. Growing in grace is for us as well. And it means not only, not only the receiving of grace, but the dispensing of grace, giving the same grace to others. Consider what this means for our relationships. If we are to grow in our ability, our capacity to give grace to others, think about what that means in the context of your family. Rather than standing in judgment of, of the brother-in-law or the mother-in-law, or what would happen if we gave grace instead of judgment? What would happen if we gave this gift with even great pleasure and great liberality, great quantity? How would that transform our family? Think about what that would mean for us as a church family. Again, rather than standing in judgment of what we see others doing or hearing what they say and talking about them, if we would instead extend this joyful gift of favor, how would that transform who we are? This is what the Apostle Peter is speaking to us. But he doesn't stop with grace. Look at, look at that again. He adds grace and peace. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. The word peace here uh, in Greek is erene. And it, it basically means tranquility or the absence of conflict, right? And the Apostle Peter's context, think about it, he is... He grew up as Simon Bar-Jonah. What does that mean? It's, it's Simon, son of Jonah. He is part of this Jewish culture. What does peace in that culture get translated as? Shalom. And it's whole lot more. It's a whole lot more than simply the absence of conflict. 
It means wholeness. It means completeness. It means well-being all together. And that is what the apostle is communicating. He wants us to experience the fullness of this grace, this favor of God given to us and through us. And he also wants to us to experience the fullness of shalom. That transforms who we are. Not only does he say that, grace and peace, I want you to have grace and peace, but I want it to be multiplied to you. Multiplied. Well, how, how in the world is that multiplied? We'll read a little further. Grace and peace multiplied to you through the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Now, um, the word knowledge here is, in Greek there's, there's a couple different words that, that are uh, translated knowledge. One of them is gnosis. And it's, it's kind of generalized knowledge. It's, it's, it's the idea of, um, of a, uh, oh, let me, let me think here. It's, it's kind of abstract knowledge. But the word that's translated here is epigenosis. It's very specific. It's, it's unique. It's particular and that knowledge here is, is indeed of God and Jesus our Lord. Both the supreme God and the supreme sacrifice. What's at stake here is the fact that that specific knowledge of God comes through a very personal relationship with Jesus it doesn't come any other way. That specific knowledge yields grace and peace in the broadest sense of their definitions. This is Peter's desire for his readers, for us, at the beginning and the end of his letter. Now, this is heart, Peter's heartfelt prayer. Multiplication of grace and peace and growing in grace through this specific knowledge of Jesus our Lord. Understand that that word is there for a very important reason. The word Lord means the supreme authority. And by implication, our master. This, this grace, this peace is multiplied to us through the specific knowledge of Jesus, our Lord. That means Jesus is the one we say yes to. You, uh, some of you, I'm sure, have read the book, The Five Love Languages. Ha anybody read that book? Good number of us, yeah. I mean, it's, the idea is that each one of us understand love communicated in, in various ways. And if we're smart and we want to communicate love to uh, our significant other... We do it in their language, not in ours, right? Because we want to say, I love you in a way they understand. My sense is that God's love language is obedience. After all, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. So what does this look like? This obedience. Well, it's, it's about actually doing, not just talking about it. Let's go on. Verse 3. 
Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Well, that's a mouthful, isn't it? Simply stated, what Peter is saying, there is no excuse for us not to obey. There is no excuse for us not living a godly life. Because believers have already been given everything that is necessary to do so. Let me read it again. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything. Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. You see, grace and peace, that's what he's talking about. This is what he wants us to experience. They are the inevitable outcome of what God has already given us. Um, Folks, this idea of life and godliness that we're called to as believers should be a slam dunk. I mean, seriously. What Peter is saying is God's already done it for you. All you have to do is enter in. So this idea of grace and peace, yes, it should be a slam dunk for us. Now, All that we need for living a godly life comes through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And again, this true knowledge is the epigenosis. It is the the very specific knowledge of, of Jesus who called us, who called us that, um, uh, if you, uh, it's been said you can call me anything except late for dinner. Right? What, who called us means that he invites us. He invites us. He says, it's time. Come on. And he calls us by his glory. The word there means that it's very, very apparent. You can't miss it kind of dignity and honor that's worthy of of worship, worthy of praise. And he's called us by his excellence. That means his absolute virtue. So not only has he given us everything we need, need to live a godly life, he has set the pace and invited us into the race. It's like he's saying, come on, come on, you got this. I already set the pace for you. I've already laid it out. I've given you everything you need. Come on, get in the race. Verse four, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that they, by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. What? Yeah, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. For by these, by what? Well, by his glory, by his excellence, his dignity, his virtue. By these, he has given us his, his precious, that means very valuable, costly, honored, highly esteemed, and magnificent, that is the greatest, the exceedingly great promises. Hmm. And what God promises, he delivers. That's That is part and parcel of his character. He is faithful. So that. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. So that. You know what that says to me? For this very distinct purpose. So that by them, 
by his precious and magnificent promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. So that you may become. It's entirely possible. This is not something that is impossible for us. He's saying this is why God has done this. So that you can become. It is entirely possible. That you may become partakers. It's curious. This word partakers is related to. uh, It's rooted in the idea of koinonia. Some of you have heard that word before. It's the Greek word we commonly know as fellowship. And how do we have fellowship? Well, you can't have fellowship just with yourself, right? It 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 has to include others. By this, he's granted to you. That by them you may become partakers, that is, working with one another, being a sharer in, being a partner with the divine nature. The divine nature? Yeah. You see, that's God's intent in our lives. We all, many of us know Romans 8.28, right? God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Praise God. Thank you, Lord. That's awesome. But many of us don't recognize or don't know, as we should, verse 29. Yeah. For those who he foreknew... He also predestined to become what? Conform to the image of his son. That's God's great intent for us. And that's what Peter is uncovering here. That being partakers of the divine nature is being conformed to the image of Jesus. And it requires koinonia. It requires partnership, sharing, being connected to one another. Peter goes on, verse 4, For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. The corruption in the world is rooted in lust. And what is lust? But the desire, the craving, the longing for that which is forbidden. All of which revolve, honestly, around ourselves. The idea that I am the center of my universe. We all have that, that root that haunts us. And it gets in the way over and over and over again. Now, noting, being the partakers of the divine nature requires, again, koinonia. That is connection or interdependence upon others. Getting ourself out of the center. Verse 5. For this very reason, that is, the reason becoming Partakers of the divine nature, also applying all diligence. All diligence? What? Diligence? Yeah, you see, our Christian life, our faith requires intentional effort to grow. Um, growth doesn't happen by osmosis. The only thing that happens uh, unintentionally is growth and laziness, right? And laziness begets ineffectiveness and incapability and insolence. Too many Christians have this idea that I'm going to get in shape spiritually by watching somebody else exercise. Think about that for a minute. 
We live our lives as, and, and we, we listen to lots of teaching and we, we go to lots of Bible studies and we fill our minds with all this stuff. But we don't do it. We think that by watching others exercise, we're somehow going to get in shape. No, it is in the doing of these things. The expressed diligence that we must be be engaged with Look, this is why Peter writes what's next. In your faith, he says, supply. That, that means basically add. In your Christian walk, in, in your faith as a believer, add these things, moral excellence. Be diligent to do this. Be disciplined in it. Add moral excellence. That means doing the right thing. And in your moral excellence, add knowledge, study, learn. And in your knowledge, add self-control. Oh, that means stop indulging every whim. Stop indulging every emotion that comes. Oh, I get so angry and I just can't control myself. What? The scripture is saying, add self-discipline. Yes, you can do that. Be diligent to do so. And in your self-control, add perseverance. That means Keep going when you feel like quitting. How many of us throw our hands up and say, I'm done? I'm out of here. No. Peter says, add perseverance. And in your perseverance, add godliness. What? Yeah. A good way to do that is to ask the question, what would Jesus do? After all, God's intention is to shape us in the image of his son. And to your godliness, add brotherly kindness. Well, that should be easy, right? Hmm. That means stop being mean to one another. Stop talking about each other. Start talking to each other. Add kindness. Give them the benefit of the doubt instead of judgment. You know, the Apostle Paul says in in Philippians chapter 2, he says, don't look out merely for your own interests, but look out for the interests of others and consider them more important than your own. What? You talk about counterculture? That's serious business. And to your brotherly kindness, add love. And the word is agape, and it means selfless, sacrificial, simply unconditional love. Verse 8, for by these qualities, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the long view. Here's the 2020 vision. Being able to see that distance in and even into the future. What's ahead? Seeing what's ahead. Being increasingly useful and fruitful in the true knowledge of Jesus. You see, this is both the goal and the outcome for those who are growing in grace and experiencing the multiplication of grace and peace in knowing Jesus. And it's a worthy goal for us to to be growing increasingly in usefulness and fruitfulness. 
After all, think about it, what we just read a little bit ago. The stage is already set. Jesus has already given us everything we need for life and godliness. And he's invited us into this walk, and it is a slam dunk. True knowledge of Jesus as our Lord is useful. In other words, it's full of use. God will use us in any number of ways if we're prepared spiritually, if we're prepared physically, mentally, skillfully. He's going to put us to use. And all we have to do is make ourselves available to him. How many of us tend to either ignore or intentionally sit on our hands when we hear of a need or even more so an invitation to get involved. (laughs) That's counter to where God wants to take us. Now, the true knowledge of Jesus also is fruitful. It just bears fruit. At, at our house, we have a tangelo tree. And it's, it, the fruit is ripe. It's, it's delicious. How does the tangelo tree produce fruit? Does it do that by straining? Suddenly there's fruit? No, it just naturally does it. It's the natural outcome of being a tangelo tree. And it's the same way with us as believers. The fruit of the Spirit should simply emerge in our lives if we are walking in the true knowledge of Jesus as our Lord. So what is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Note that the fruit does not include anger, impatience, unreliability, unrestraint. That's not the fruit of the Holy Spirit, is it? And so if we see those things emerging in our lives... We have to say, wait a second. If it walks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, if it looks like a duck, chances are it's a duck. In other words, if I'm dealing with anger that boils up and I can't control myself, if I'm indulging every interest in my life and my life is out of control, what is that saying? Peter is urging us, be diligent in cultivating that which yields good, godly fruit. Moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. Now, note that all of these require diligence to practice and perfect and propagate in our lives. It requires diligence. It's not something that's going to happen by accident. In other words, I'm urging us as believers today, along with the Apostle Peter, let's sweat together. It requires our energy, our commitment to actually step out in obedience. It's not about sitting back and just taking it all in. It's about doing it. Verse 9, for he who lacks these qualities is blind and short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Let's not be blind. Let's not be short-sighted, myopic, unable to see beyond ourselves. Let's be diligent and gain 
to gain and persevere the vision that sees beyond the present. As the worship team comes to lead us in a closing song, I'd like to offer you a word of assurance. Verse 10. Take a look at verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. What? You will never stumble for as long as you practice these things. Do we get what practice is? It means doing it over and over and over again until it just becomes part of our muscle memory. It just becomes part of who we are. For in this way, verse 11 the entrance to the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Verse 12. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. Peter is saying, I'm not going to give up stirring you up. I'm not going to give up reminding you of these things, even though you already know them. We've soaked it in, right? It's time to get off the couch and start doing it. Would you stand with me? We're going to we're going to sing a song that says, I want to be close to you, Lord. You're the great I am, and I want to be close to you. That doesn't happen by accident. It happens by intention. Lord, this morning we want to say, we want to be those who are intentional in our relationship with you. And that vision of experiencing the fullness of grace, not only receiving it, but giving it and growing in it, Lord, to experiencing the fullness of your shalom in our lives and extending it beyond ourselves. That is the vision that we want to walk into as your people this year. Let's pray this prayer together.